On today's episode, I'd like you to take a brisk walk with me. Let's walk until we reach 1978. That's 10 years after 18-year-old Christine Rothschild was found in a bush, beaten, stabbed, and strangled to death on the campus at UW-Madison. Four years after 15-year-old Tina Davison's nude body was found, stabbed to death on the rocky shore of Lake Michigan in Racine. And two years after 20-year-old Deborah Bennett was found, her body burned and hidden in a field in Cross Plains. Let's walk together to Wanakee. This is a Searching for Closure podcast. Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide Files. It's a murder from 1973. It was the first day of summer, June 21st, 1978, when a farmer would make a shocking discovery as he was tending to his land. In a shallow grave, just off of Woodland Road and Highway 12, he found the new body of a young woman. She was placed face down in a shallow stump hole and was covered with dirt and leaves. This particular part of land where her body was found was a very low-lying area, and all the rainwater from the cornfield nearby drained down, helping to hide the body. The temperature recently had been pretty warm, averaging between the 60s and the 80s in the past couple weeks, and the county was pounded with extreme storms and heavy rains. This weather caused the body to decompose at a rapid rate, which made identifying the woman extremely difficult. Eventually, city and county investigators had to use dental records to identify the girl. The young girl's name was Julie Ann Hall. Julie was born on December 19, 1959. She was a native of Fenimore, Wisconsin, which is basically all the way on the southwest side of the state along the Mississippi River. 18-year-old Julie was the only girl out of seven boys in her family. Her mother, Betty, had won the Illinois State Lottery in March of 1975. After she won the $300,000, apparently trouble started brewing in the family because two years after she won, which was about six to eight months before Julie's death, her mother, Betty, and her father, Don, filed for divorce. Don stayed in Fenimore, but Betty moved out into a trailer court, which was not too far from where Julie was found. It was on the side of Highway 12 in Baraboo. At the time of her death, Julia was living at the Park Village Apartments on Woodview Court in the south side of downtown Madison. The apartments were only about 20 minutes from where she was found, if you bypass the downtown area and take the Highway 14 Beltline around the west side of Madison. According to the secretary of the apartment complex, Julie wasn't officially listed as a tenant of the complex. Instead, she was living there with one of her brothers, which was not unusual, as guests sometimes stayed with residents for extended periods of time. She had just moved to Madison two months ago after studying for a short time at a technical school. For the past month and a half, she worked as a library assistant in the archive section at the Wisconsin Historical Society of Madison. Being relatively new to town, it's said that most of her social life 
revolved around her brother and his friends and all of their activities. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, her brother lived off donating blood to a downtown plasma center, which earned him about $30 a week. Despite having what some would call an oversized nose, which for the record, I wouldn't describe it as oversized, that's what the Madison, Wisconsin State Journal of 1979 described her as. Anyways, she was described as pretty, with reddish tint to her long brown hair. She only stood five foot three and weighed between 110 and 125 pounds. The medical examiner's first reports stated that she died from blows to the head with a blunt instrument, but upon further investigation, it showed that she only had one major mark to her head. It appeared that someone struck her very hard, just beneath her jaw. Her body also showed numerous scratches and bruises, which undoubtedly came from her naked body being dragged to the hole in the ground where she was left. Toxicology and other tests were performed to see if she had any drugs in her system or if she had been the victim of sexual assault. But because of the advanced decomposition, no test could prove anything one way or another. Some investigators believe that she was not dead when she was placed inside of her makeshift grave, that she was only unconscious when she was half buried. But due to her injuries and the placement inside the stump, she was unable to save herself and eventually died from exposure. People speculate as to if the burial was merely meant to cover up a crime, whether that be a rape or perhaps it was a robbery that went wrong. Whether they meant for her to die there in that hole or not is unknown. But honestly, if you leave someone like that completely incapacitated, covered by a bunch of leaves and sticks and stuff, half buried, head first in a hole in the ground, you obviously don't care if she dies. If anything, the killer was just a coward and he couldn't finish her off. So what got Julie to this point? What path did she walk down that took her to the bottom of a shallow grave, naked and beaten, left for dead in the hot summer rain? Did she run into a random stranger hitchhiking? Or was it someone she knew? What police do know is that on Friday, June 16th of 1978, Julie was out with a male friend of hers. They were seen at a bar just off the east side of Capitol Square in downtown Madison called the Main King Tap. During their autopsy, medical examiners were able to see the contents of the meal she had consumed that night. Which, to me says that she died not too long after eating. I'm not saying that it was like immediately afterwards, but at least within 12 to 24 hours, because otherwise her food would have been fully digested. Speaking to police, the man that accompanied Julie on this date and witnessed her eat her final meal said that after they finished their date, Julie went her way and he went on his own way, and that was the last time he ever saw her. Pathologist had first placed her time of death at being late Friday night or early on Saturday morning, which coincides with what I originally speculated due to her food being undigested. But for a short period of time, 
Police thought that Julie might have been murdered later Saturday night instead. An unidentified concerned citizen contacted police and reported that they heard a woman screaming for help Saturday night. The scream had reportedly come from downtown Madison in an area near an apartment complex where Julie's date for the evening currently lived. He also worked there as a maintenance man. Eventually, police determined that the call was in fact unfounded and they were doubtful that the screams had anything to do with Julie's. Yet another interesting piece of the puzzle is the fact that her brother had recently been released from prison. Police questioned his friends and one person even went as far as taking at least two lie detector tests. A 1981 newspaper story quoted an investigator as saying they were confident they had a strong suspect in the case, but no arrests were ever made. And now, over 40 years later, her case remains unsolved. On next week's episode, our true crime time machine will land on March 27th, 1979, exactly six years after Tina Davison was brutally stabbed to death. On this fateful day, another young woman named Julie will go missing from downtown Madison, and she will not be seen again for over two years. If you have any tips, leads, or clues regarding any of the cases I cover, please email me at info at searchingforclosure.com or join our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash groups slash searchingforclosure. All these links, along with photos, articles, and updates, can be found at searchingforclosure.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're instantly updated with any new episodes if I do get any breaking news. If I do, I'll release it as soon as I can record it, instead of waiting until the normal release date. Also, please share this podcast with all your friends and family. Share it on Facebook. Tell your coworkers. Tell everyone you know. The more people who listen to this, the more tips and breaks in the case we might get. The more fresh eyes we have examining it, the more possibilities we have in seeing a new angle or something that might have been overlooked. Until next time, thank you for listening.